Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 through 2815. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow, and the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he has said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee, where you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It almost goes without saying that the opponents of the gospel, those who are opposed to its spread, opposed to Christianity generally, have long recognized the critical importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we've seen from the gospel account here in Matthew, and we remember that Matthew is a first century document written by one of Christ's 12 apostles, an eyewitness to the events that he chronicles, not something told third or fourth hand. What Matthew tells us is that Jesus had only just been laid in this borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea when Jesus' principal opponents come up to, to Pilate, the governor of that particular region, and they say to him, you have got to seal this tomb. What you have got to do is you need to put the official seal of the Roman government on it, and we need a Roman guard outside. Because you see, the Pharisees had asked Jesus to provide them with a miraculous sign to prove what they wanted was, you know, signs and miracles to prove that he was who he said he was, the Messiah, the, the promised redeemer of Israel, that king that they'd been waiting for. They said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. That despite the fact that Jesus had been going and doing many miracles, they always wanted more, 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 because no standard of proof was going to be enough. But they remembered that when they had asked him that, Jesus had said this. He replied, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said that three days and three nights 
in the, in the belly of the fish three days and three nights in the, in the earth. Okay, what he's saying is that the fact that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, will finally be proven without a shadow of a doubt. Because after three days, he's going to rise again from the dead. He is going to physically rise up from the tomb. Now, the Pharisees and the chief priests didn't believe Christ's claims for a moment. And having had him executed by the Romans, they didn't believe that he would rise again from the dead. They, they felt to a certain extent their problems with Christ were over. But their fear was that this, this whole problem, as they viewed it, might be perpetuated for a little bit longer by his disciples. What they might do is come and, and steal away his body in the dead of night and claim that although no one had seen it, and no one had any evidence for it, that Jesus had arisen. So they were smart. They went to Pilate and they said, you need to seal this tomb. You need to secure this tomb. And the penalty for breaking that Roman seal placed on it by the governor would have been death. And that by crucifixion as well. And by law, the Roman guards themselves would be put to death if someone succeeded in getting past them and opening up the tomb and stealing the body. And they knew that if they could do that, if they could seal the tomb with the governor's own seal and put a Roman guard there, not a Jewish guard, if they could do that, then that would end the possibility of the disciples coming and stealing the body forever. And indeed, the gospel writers tell us that after Christ's resurrection, they themselves were in disarray. The apostles were despairing. You remember, they locked themselves in the upper room, the two disciples walking down the road to Emmaus. We had thought this man was the Messiah, but he's dead. Despair, lack of hope, confusion is now present amongst them. They weren't organized enough to go and fetch groceries at this part, uh, point, much less steal a body. That's what the gospel writers tell us. And a Roman guard and a Roman seal would certainly be enough to stop a motley group of fishermen from stealing a body. That would have been it. But what those things, that seal and that guard could never do, is stop the Son of God from rising from the dead. They had no power in that particular domain. And on the third day, as Matthew reports, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rose again from the dead just as he had promised. We read that that morning there was an earthquake and an angel descended and rolled away the rock before the door. And that wasn't to let Jesus out. Remember that. Okay? It's not that they needed an angel to do that. It was to point out that he had already risen. Look, the tomb's empty. There's no point in coming here. The tomb doesn't hold Jesus. Death cannot hold him. But when it happened, when the angel descended, the earthquake happened, the rock was rolled away. That was more than the guards could stand. They were petrified. And as soon as they recovered from their shock, what did they do? They ran off. But they knew if we run back to the Antonia Fortress, if we go back to our commanders and say, uh, an angel came and rolled away the, the, the tomb... Uh, stone and, and, you know, in a matter of minutes, they would be, you know, carrying their own crosses to Golgotha. They'd be next in line for execution. So instead, they're savvy. They think, OK, let's go tell the high priests what happened this morning. And that's exactly what they did. And the high priests were very eager to make sure that their story didn't get out and spread amongst the populace. So they bribed them with a lot of money to say the apostles stole their body. To which those guards must have thought for a second, well, wait a minute. What you want us to do is to tell people we didn't do our duty? Is that what you're... I mean, falling asleep on guard is a death penalty offense. 
Guys, I know those of you who are serving think you may have it hard, but it's nothing compared to, uh, to, to what happened to you if you neglected your duty in the, the Roman army. If Pilate hears of this, they're thinking, we're going to be crucified. But what they tell them, the chief priests say to them is, don't worry, we'll make sure that Pilate sees it our way. All right. So if he hears what's being said about you, we'll we'll protect you. And of course, the priest probably immediately went to Pilate and said, Pilate, do you have any idea what the Jewish people would do to us if they thought for a moment? Seriously, the mass of the population thought that the uh, that the Messiah, that God was going to send this king who would reign over them and bring in an age of glory and so on. If they thought that we crucified him, any idea? Pilate probably said, ah, <laughs> I see your point. For the sake of the peace of Jerusalem, all right, I'm not going to uh, do anything to these men who were given the guard over this tomb. So they spread this false story. And that false story, historically, we know, was picked up on and multiplied. Matthew himself, who's writing in about 70 or 85 A.D., says that that story is still being circulated to this day. And from the historical sources outside of the Bible, we know that that story was circulated. For instance, the execution of Jesus for apostasy, quote, is recorded in the Talmud, which was compiled in about 135 A.D. Justin Martyr, a Christian apologist, writing in 150 A.D., says that the Jewish leaders, and he's writing to Jews, okay, says that the Jewish leaders, you know, you've sent men all around the Mediterranean spreading this particular story. He sent them as far as Rome to say that the apostles stole the body of Jesus Christ, and that's why there's no body. Tertullian, writing in 200 A.D., confirms exactly the same story. Now, brothers and sisters, friends, had the opponents of Christianity had the body, it would have been a different story, if I can put it that way. They had to spread this story. The apostles stole the body precisely because Christ had arisen. And they didn't have a body. They didn't have a well-known tomb to appeal to as evidence that Christ had not arisen. If they had, they would have done so again and again. And that would have been the ultimate debate ender, especially as Jesus and his, uh, is being preached by his apostles in Jerusalem, the very place where he was executed. Let me put it to you simply. You cannot proclaim that someone has physically risen from the dead if your entire audience is looking down the road and saying, wait a minute, he's buried over there. Do you want us to go dig him up again to show you? Come on. They would have hauled out his ossuary, his bone box every time. Here, Peter, stand on that while you're preaching his resurrection would have been a laughingstock story. All right, why do I say all of that? Because believe it or not, that's just the introduction. I know you're thinking, oh no. <laughs> well, I say all of that because unless you've taken a vow not to watch TV, listen to the radio, or speak to your co-workers probably, or surf the internet certainly, you probably have heard that James Cameron, the producer of Titanic, and that great theologian and archaeologist, uh, and Simka Jakobovici, the producer of documentaries like 2005's Yummy Mummy, and I'm not making that up, have announced that they have discovered the Jesus family tomb outside of Jerusalem, which they believe to be the final resting place of the bones of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary his mother, Matthew, one of his disciples, and Judah, whom they claim is Jesus' son. This is what they're saying. And they claim to have statistical evidence, and they claim to have DNA evidence proving that beyond a shadow of reasonable doubt. 
And so what they've been doing this week is they've had a whirlwind tour of the talk shows and, and every site that they could possibly get on to promote the movie that's going to be on Discovery this evening. And also to promote Jakobovich, he's recently released a book entitled The Jesus Family Tomb, The Discovery, The Investigation, and The Evidence That Could Change History. Now, let's, let's analyze that. If that were true, if the claims that they were making, James Cameron and, and Simka Jakobovich, if what they were claiming was true, how important would that be? Well, it would mean, just for instance, and these are just a few things it would mean, it would mean that the New Testament was a fabrication, a fabrication from beginning to end. And considering that we have multiple copies and fragments of the gospel that go back as far as 110 A.D., it would mean that the New Testament was written from the very beginning as a fabrication. That the men who set pen to paper knew they were writing lies. That what they were proclaiming had happened had not happened. And that virtually every other Christian, Gentile, and anti-Christian document that were written about Jesus in the same period were also lies. It would mean that his early followers were quite content to believe falsehoods they knew to be untrue, and so on. Brothers and sisters, if this story that is being spread okay, by, by Simca and Cameron, um, or Jakobovich, I should say, and Cameron, if it were true, I'm not understanding by saying that would be the end of the Christian faith. Now, if you believe that's going too far, listen to what Paul the Apostle says. He at least was an authority, I think, in the Christian faith, wasn't he? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, we need to remember that Paul, writing in his letter, is actually writing before the gospel accounts were written. All right, before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these letters actually precede the Gospels. I want to start writing, uh, reading rather in verse 12. He says this, Now Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead. And that's what he's been saying precisely before that. In fact, he's been piling up evidence. 500 witnesses saw him. All of these things to the rising of uh, Christ. He says, If Christ has preached from the dead, that he has risen from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have been perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men the most pitiable. He's saying, brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then not only do you no longer have any hope, you have no atonement for your sins, and we are most to be pitied in this life. If this is it, if we're just Christians for this time only, then the people who are eating and drinking and being married, they're smarter than we are. They are better off than we are. If I can... Turn this on a more personal aside, turning it away from Paul for a second. If, on a personal note, I believe that this story that was being spread by Cameron and Jacobovich were true, this would be my last sermon to you. After this, I would preach no more. Friends, there is no way that I could go on preaching a message that I knew to be untrue and ultimately profitless. I would apologize to you for every word that I had spoken from this pulpit before, and you would never see me again because I would not go on being a pastor. Brothers and sisters, being a pastor is far too difficult to do it in your own strength. It is far too unprofitable in that sense. If, if all I'm doing is preaching for this lifetime and there's nothing beyond it, I would not go on in it. 
And I certainly would not do so for the sake of comforting lies. To spend a life misleading people? Telling them there's a hereafter when there is none? Spiritualizing a message that's obviously meant to be taken literally? Not at all. I'd probably say to you, guys, I think tomorrow uh, you should make inquiries at your local Orthodox temple because the Messiah hasn't come yet. Because the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah who was promised would be God with us. And God with us, Emmanuel, doesn't have a tomb where his bones are discovered. He's incorruptible. He goes on forever. So, maybe some of you are asking, is this your final sermon? <laughs> you know, what, should we cancel evening worship? Well, before I answer that, let's, let's talk. Let's talk briefly about the story of this tomb. I could go on for hours, unfortunately, and for your sake, I will not do that. Understand that this is just a, a, a massive conflation of the details. There's a book about this big, that Simka Jokovovich's claims about this thing. I'm just going to give you a very quick overview of the evidence and then the refutation of it. Now, in 1980, what is this all about? In 1980, workers in Talpia, which is a, a southwestern suburb of Jerusalem, were excavating an area to build an apartment block, okay? When they come upon a tomb, now this is no big deal in Israel. As a friend of mine who, who's gone on excavations in Israel puts it, you can't set a spade down without uncovering history. He said, I was working on a tomb and we found some, some artifacts and the guy said, ah, it's procedure junk, throw it away. It was too recent, literally. They said, you know, dig five more minutes and you'll get down way below the period of the Crusades and get into the stuff we're interested in. Archaeology is all over the place in Israel. And so they had found already countless tombs in this particular area. So what they did was they call in the archaeologists and the archaeologists come in and they painstakingly, uh, painstakingly excavate this large tomb. They find a tomb that contained 10 ossuaries and then the scattered remains of what they think are up to 35 people. Now, what is an ossuary? An ossuary is a carved bone box, okay? Sometimes ornamented, sometimes not, sometimes with names on it, sometimes not. And they were only used during the period of what they call the Second Temple. And that is up until the Romans destroyed the temple in about 70 AD. After the first century, you don't see many of these anymore. And generally, uh, generally rather speaking, ossuaries were only used by wealthy people. Now, what was an ossuary? How did it come into, into uh, a, a bone box? All right, what does that mean? Well, when they buried people back in Christ's time, the way they did it was this. They used to bind the body in sheets. You remember we read about that as Jesus is buried. And then they would put them in a, a niche in a tomb. A niche big enough for them to be laid out full. And then they would wait a year. And then they would come back and collect the remains. They would come back and they would collect the bones. And they would bind them up into a small bundle. And then they would place them in another tomb, okay, a tomb that could be filled with many more of these bones. Usually, sometimes they would, uh, they would just, they would wind them in a sheet or something like that. But if they had money, they would go back and they would put them in a smaller box called an ossuary and mark it with the, with the remains of the person who had died. And the way, the reason they did with that was they could keep on using tombs. You could keep, you know, once you'd remove the, the old remains, you would put new ones in. Okay, they were, they were interested in maximizing the space for burial because they didn't have much of it. And tombs were very expensive things to build and maintain. Now, there are so many literally of these ossuaries in ancient Israel that a friend of mine tells me in the old city you can go into antique stores and buy them. And people do, and they use them as planters, believe it or not. You come into a courtyard, there's an ossuary with plants growing in it right now. Well, so these are not uncommon things. You're thinking, 
I'm glad they don't do that with coffins. <laughs> that would be awful. But anyway, six of the ten ossuaries that they uh, found had names on them. The tenth ossuary is now missing, but the original archaeologists on this dig, and as Joe Zias and Amos Cloner, both report that that ossuary was blank, that it had no name on it. That's important because Simka Jakobovich is claiming that was probably the James brother of Jesus ossuary. It was not. That where they're absolutely certain of. Now, the names on the ossuaries were this. I'm going to give you the original name as it was written in Aramaic or Greek in one case. It was written in Greek. And then I'm going to tell you what the translation is. All right. The names were Yeshua bar Yehosef, which is Jesus, son of Joseph, Mariomeneu uh, Mara, and that's the Greek one. They're translating it as Mary, known as the master. That is a bad translation. The actual translation is Miriam, known as Martha. Yehuda bar Yeshua, that's Judah, son of Jesus. Matthiah, which means Matthew. Yose, which is a short form. That's like Joe. It's a short form of Joseph. And Maria, which means Mary. All of those inscriptions are in Aramaic except for Mariaminu Mara, which is in Greek. Now, why, when they heard these names, didn't the archaeologists who were doing the excavations go, <gasps> throw up their hands and say, we've discovered the lost tomb of Jesus. Why didn't they do that back in 1980? Was it because they were all idiots and none of them had read the New Testament? No, brothers and sisters, they didn't do that because they saw the names, uh, those names on ossuaries all the time. Over and over again. In fact, let me give you a statistic, because they love statistics. 21% of the women buried during this period had the name Maria or Mary. Mary was more common than Steve or Joe or Mike is today. 3.4% of all the men had the name Yeshua, which is, of course, Joshua. Okay? It means Yahweh saves. Very common. That makes it, believe it or not, a more common name in Jesus' time. Jesus' name was more common in his own time than my name is today, Andrew. It's actually less uh, common in the modern world. So they just filed it away and then they moved on. That is until filmmakers get involved. And they begin to smell money. All right. So Simka Yakobovich gets involved. And the profile gets jacked up immediately. From the start, he's looking to make a connection between these ossuaries and to Jesus Christ. Now, good archaeology goes from the evidence to the conclusion. From his book, what I've seen of it, Jacobovici from word go is moving from conclusion to evidence. In other words, he has something he wants to prove. Now, the big problem with the cluster of these six names is Mariamenu Mara. All right. And indirectly also Yehuda bar Yeshua, because neither of these names are mentioned in the Bible. They don't occur in the New Testament. So how are we going to pin them to Jesus Christ? Well, Jacobovich, he digs and digs and digs. And finally, he manages to find a gospel of sorts that he's going to claim is is the missing link. And it mentions Mariamne. All right. Uh, It's a Gnostic gospel called the Gospel of Philip, which the, the finder, the original finder, that claims was written in the 5th century. All right, so this is roughly 400 years after the birth of Jesus. But the earliest copy of it that we have dates to the 14th century. And it's almost uh, completely uncommon. In it, Mariamne is called the sister of Philip the Apostle and sister of Martha. And in this gospel, she does amazing things. She goes out and she evangelizes the nations. And when she's persecuted by the proconsul's troops, and I'm quoting directly from it, she became like an ark of glass full of light and fire and everyone ran away. All right. This is the, the, the form and substance of this particular gospel. Now, even the gospel of Philip doesn't say 
Mariamne is Mary Magdalene, but one scholar says that is who she is. And that, of course, is who Simca Jacobovich he chose to believe. Oh, yeah, of course. So the Gospel of Philip is his proof. Meanwhile, the Gospel of Philip doesn't say she married Jesus, doesn't say she had children, but since the current Vogue is following the Da Vinci Code and that kind of there, that's what Mary Magdalene did. It must be the case. There's popular consensus. And as Joe was, sorry, Elder Ivory was pointing out to us this morning, um, popular consensus, that's, that's something you can appeal to directly. Now, if it follows, therefore, that Mary Amney was Mary Magdalene, then Mary Magdalene must be Jesus' wife. So they said, aha, let's do a DNA test. If they're directly related, then they can have been man and wife. But if they're not, then they could be man and wife. So they do a DNA test from the remaining bone fragments from the Yeshua and the Mariani boxes, and they find out, A, they're both Jews. Okay, that's amazing. We've got an ossuary outside of Jerusalem, and they're both Jews. Good. <laughs> Secondly, they did not have the same mother. Therefore, Simca concluded they must have been man and wife. Hands up, everybody, who uh, doesn't have the same mother as the person sitting next to them. It should be lots. Of, you're all man and wife, all right? That's literally the kind of conclusion that's being made. What they don't tell you in the book is that the DNA lab that did the tests told them they could have been father and mother, paternal cousins, half-brother and sister, or simply two completely unrelated individuals in the same tomb. Very possible. But, all right, let's say you're Christians and you're naturally skeptical. You've got inbuilt biases. We're going to have to hop over. All right, we'll do that. There's the statistical evidence, and we all love statistics, don't we? It is, according to Simka Jacobovici, a 600 to 1 possibility that these six names could occur together. So they must be the family of Jesus Christ. 600 to 1 that they could occur. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to say this. There's a good reason that Mark Twain once famously wrote, there are lies, and I'm going to edit him, darned lies and statistics. Okay, in increasing uh, uh, light of untruth. Use statistics right, and you know this. You can prove anything. Brothers and sisters, it is actually statistically far, far less likely than 600 to 1. And I checked this out. I asked somebody who could do math on the web. He actually gave me the number, but I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, uh, write it down. Going from the census, the, the commonality of their names, it is more, far more than 600 to 1 that in the modern day, one family could consist of six people bearing the names Andrew, Joy, Margaret, Victor, Graham, and Isabel. You can use statistics to prove that I don't exist, all right? Or that I have a family with those members in it. It means nothing. Nothing at all. And that is really it. That's it, okay? There's, there's window dressing. There's going to be an hour of stuff about Jesus and his times to fluff it up, but that really is the end of their theory. Some common names, a DNA test that actually proves nothing you haven't assumed already, and a far-fetched story taken from a Gnostic gospel. That is it. That's all the evidence. Oh, wait, there is one other thing. There's a lot of support from the media. And there's a lot of support from people who want to make money, people who are eager to disbelieve Christianity amongst the scholarly community. Now, let me give you an example of the kind of scholarly stuff. Let me just put it, stuff that's going on. Perhaps the worst example of this is a man by the name of James Tabor. Now, James Tabor is the chair of religious studies at UNC Charlotte. And he had previously written a book called The Jesus Dynasty. What did he argue in that book? He argued that Jesus was the illegitimate child of a Roman soldier named Pantera. That's his theory. It's nothing new, but he's spreading it. That's his conclusion. But now James Tabor has come out supporting the lost tomb which assumes that according to the inscription, Jesus is the son of Joseph, not Pantera. 
He's done a volte facie. He only published this book a year ago, and already he's he's going against. It. In other words, Simon, uh, rather, um, what, what's his name? Um, Tabor, James Tabor, supports any theory other than what the gospel tells us. He can be the son of anybody. I'm happy with that as long as he's not the son of God. As long as that's not your conclusion, I'll go with anything. All right. Now, in the evidence against the lost tomb categories, I said I could go on all day. I'm just going to give you some bullet points because, brothers and sisters, what am I hoping that you will do? I'm hoping that you will use these things not for for Simka Jakobovici and for James Cameron, but that you will use these things as a means of spreading the truth and as a means of being light and salt in the places where you are. First. The tomb itself was not secret. It was heavily ornamented. You can see pictures of it. It is prominent. It would have been very well known. If the Jews had known where Jesus and his family plot were, they would have dragged his ossuary every time out, every time the apostles preached. There would have been no end of it. The apostles would have been the laughing stock of Jerusalem. Peter would never have been able to give the Acts 2 ser- uh, sermon. Whom you know. You saw his miracles. You know he rose from the dead. And they're cut to the quick. Paul would never have been able to get away with saying there were 500 witnesses to the risen Jesus if everybody knew the address of his body. It's ridiculous. Secondly, if Jesus had a son named Judah, whom Simca argues wrote, this is another thing, he argues he wrote Gnostic Gospels, including the Gospel of Thomas, which was written 100 years after this tomb was, was created, okay, in Coptic Greek. One scholar looking at it wondered, was there a fax in the ossuary or something? Is that how he managed to pull off this great feat? Also, he is never mentioned. Judah, son of Jesus, is never mentioned, not even in the Gnostic Gospels. And the Gnostic Gospels would have loved to have had somebody else they could use as a, as a conduit for secret knowledge of Jesus. Not even they mention him. Thirdly, why is Matthew, who isn't related to Jesus in any way, he's not even from the same tribe, why is he buried in the Jesus family too? Anybody? Fourth, Jesus is never called the son of Joseph by his family members or apostles. In fact, you only have one reference to Jesus as the son of Joseph, and that is in John 6:42, when his enemies use it as a put-down. Do you think they really would have inscribed that on his tomb if it was a put-down? Secondly, fifth, no DNA evidence can prove any actual relation to the actual Jesus. We have no control sample. Nobody has hair evidence from Christ or anything like that. And also, why did they only test the Yeshua and Mariamne DNA? What if their tests showed that nobody in the tomb is related? Or, as more likely is the case, it's a multi-generational tomb. Mary Magdalene is always called Maria in first century literature. She is never referred to as Mariamne. Seventh, the names on the ossuaries are in three languages. Again, that supports the idea of a multi-generational tomb of long use. There is no reason to suppose that a family that spoke Aramaic to record, would record names of the people in three different languages unless they were written down over a long period of time, many generations. Eighth, why would the Jesus family tomb have been in Jerusalem? which was almost directly under the control of the Romans and the high priests, if he was this rebel, and his family were rebels as well, especially because he was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth, and after his death, that's where we have indications that the majority, the bulk of his family were as well. Ninth, the so-called James Ossuary has definitively been shown not to have come from this tomb, contrary to Jacobovich's theory. You could pile it on and on and on, but... If we have all of this evidence against, and if the evidence for is so pitifully thin, why are we, why are you, why am I being bombarded by this theory now? Why? Well, okay. Obviously, coming on the heels of Da Vinci Code fever, there's still a lot of money to be made by peddling this theory. And in recent years, you may have noticed this. There's a new media tradition for celebrating Easter. 
Okay, how do they do it? They bring out specials debunking the gospel and they hype them. That is, that is how they go about celebrating Easter. Now, one wonders when Ramadan rolls along, why they don't have specials debunking the Quran or exposing the real life of Muhammad? You know, just the historical details about what he got up to during his life. Well, let me see. Could it be that if I debunk Christianity, I don't get my head cut off? But if I attempt to debunk Islam, I do. And then they force you to go into hiding if they don't manage to get you immediately, and that's the end of your career. That may have something to do with it, but brothers and sisters, I don't think that's just it. I think, seriously, that this has far more to do with the nature of the spiritual warfare that you and I and the apostles and Jesus Christ are engaged in. I think this is all simply another move in the grand struggle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, of this age against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And that, of course, is Paul's word uh, verbiage in Ephesians 6.12. And brothers and sisters, I'm saying that also from prior experience, not as, you know, some biased Christian from the very get-go. Uh, this kind of theory, Jacobovich's and Cameron's theory, is the kind of thing that prior to becoming a Christian, I would have thrived on. It's the kind of thing my unbelieving heart wanted to hear. I would have embraced this theory without the DNA evidence, without the statistics. They would have merely bolstered my, uh, my arguments. Now, brothers and sisters, why didn't I attack Islam like I attacked Christianity as an unbeliever? Why was that the case? Why doesn't the world attack Islam the way it attacks Christianity, tearing it to shreds? Well, because as Jesus put it, that would have been Satan rising up against himself and his own kingdom. It would have been totally counterproductive to the ultimate agenda. And that's the reason why Christianity is the only religion that gets shredded in print or in media the way it is. It is, as Jesus put it, he said this in John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And so what's going on is what was going on immediately after Jesus rose. Attempts to gin up evidence that he didn't rise again. Because he mustn't rise again. Because if he rose again, what he said was true. And it can't be true. It must not be true. Our hearts tell us this. It must not be the case, because if that is true, then Jesus is the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, he's the only way to be reconciled with God. And if he's the only way to be reconciled to God, then I'm still in my sins. I'm hellbound. And that is a conclusion that no man wants to come to when he's a natural man. Paul would have nothing to do with that conclusion prior to his own conversion. So I know you've probably all guessed by, the, by this time. Yeah, he's planning on preaching this evening, I can tell. Uh, well, brothers and sisters, that is true. Unless God calls me home to meet the bodily resurrected Savior I've been preaching, then this is where I'll be. And I hope this is where you'll be as well this evening. So in closing, let me warn you this, of this. While you are living in this world, please, and I say this with, I, I wish it were not the case, get used to this kind of thing. Get very used to this. Kids, I know this has been very confusing probably to you in many different ways, or some of you may have immediately gleaned what I was talking about, but regardless, I hate to say this, get used to this. Because you are going to be bombarded as you grow up with this stuff in a way that hasn't been seen since before the third century and the legalization of Christianity. You are going to be bombarded by it the way that the world was bombarded by it when they were being persecuted by the Romans. 
It's just going up and up and up every year. So as you grow up, you are going to be surrounded by vicious unbelief. And so I exhort you all, not just kids, but adults as well, make up your mind now. Make up your mind now and then stick to it. The evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. It is scriptural. It is historical. It is even experiential. And without it, you wouldn't have a Christian faith. Peter's first Pentecost sermon would have been a tremendous flop. Yeah, he rose again from the dead. Oh, come on. Everybody would have laughed and that would have been the end of it. But no, they didn't. Because they knew that what he was saying was true. 500 witnesses had seen it. The dead had arisen and come into Jerusalem to preach this Jesus. They'd seen the miracles he did and they were cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit. And that is the great confirming factor. All the evidence in the world will not prevent a man from unbelieving. It will not change his heart unless the Holy Spirit does that changing work. You could have Jesus appear to him and preach the gospel and he wouldn't believe. They didn't in Christ's time. They wouldn't today. Unless the Holy Spirit does that changing work. So brothers and sisters, consider that. And also consider the amazing rate, for instance, at which your prayers in this church have been answered. The reason they have been answered is because we pray in Christ's name and there's a God who hears these things and who is gracious and who blesses us. Do you know statistically, I don't even know what it is, how many things we've asked for and the Lord has been gracious to I mean, that's way more than 600 to 1. Way more. And yet, the unbelieving world slots that kind of thing off. Oh, coincidence! It's funny how there are certain coincidences they like and certain coincidences they won't accept. Well, brothers and sisters, what's the conclusion? Jesus really rose on the third day and he is still risen. And all the hate and all the scorn that the world can pour forth won't change that fact. And so don't give credence to it. There is no hope in it. There is no hope in it here or hereafter. And brothers and sisters, do all that you can to tell other people this, to point out that singular fact to them, that it is only in Christ that we have hope. Let me close with Paul's words regarding this. He said this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let us go before that Lord who gives us that assurance. We do thank you, O Lord, that our hope is not grounded in statistics, in probabilities, or in any of these things. Our hope is grounded in the fact of the resurrection. And O Lord, we have the assurance of our faith through that union that we have with Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, a work that only the Holy Spirit could do in our hearts. I thank you, O Lord, that you turned me away from naked unbelief Lord, you changed my heart when I had spent 23 years pouring scorn upon your people, disbelieving with all of my heart, hating you. And, oh, Lord, yet you loved me and you touched me and you changed my heart and you brought me from the camp of darkness to the camp of light. And I know you are still doing that, Lord. I've heard that testimony again and again. You see it in the life of Paul, a man who hated your church, and yet you made him its greatest proclaimer. Oh, Lord, I pray, therefore, that if there is anybody today who is struggling with doubts about this, that you would overcome them. 
And you would let them know that your word is true, that it is sure, it is steadfast, and it always will be. Pray, O Lord, now that you would give us the strength to talk to those who have been beguiled by this and persuade them, O Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit that Jesus is Lord, that he is risen again. And if Jesus is risen, then we will as well. O Lord, thank you for that good news. Glory, hallelujah. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.